0: Let's make our way in our Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. You may be wondering, well, where's our sermon handout? Well, I had the same question this morning. <laughs> uh, I created it last night and thought I saved it and was going to print it this morning when I got here and when I figured out I could not, I could not find the file whatsoever. And uh, so um, that's, that, that's probably user error on me. Maybe I didn't click save and I thought I did. Uh, we, were, we got in yesterday uh, evening from our trip, and, and so I was trying to finish up a few things, and maybe I just forgot. I don't know. So you'll have to just pay attention to take notes the old-fashioned way. Isn't that a shame? That's such a hard thing to do, isn't it? Uh, but um, anyway, that's, that's your reason. So you don't know where they're at because I don't know where they're at. <laughs> um, but we're, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 down through verse number 6. and may tie into verse 7 a little bit, too. And um, the title of the message is We Preach Jesus Christ the Lord. We Preach Jesus Christ the Lord. And I want to give a message to us that would uh, be a challenge to us, especially as we enter into a new year together. Uh, I'm thankful for every year that goes by, but I always look forward to the year that's ahead of us. And, uh, you know, we don't know what's ahead of us in a year, do we? But we do know that God has given us responsibility to take day by day, and that we as a church have responsibility and uh, that's what I want to encourage us with here today. So let's begin reading here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. We'll come down through verse number 6. Paul the Apostle, he's writing to the local church there in Corinth, and he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open by the open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, today we find ourselves in our exiting exiting one year and entering into a new year. It's the last day of 2023, and tomorrow will be 2024. And uh, every time we transition to a new year, I pause and recognize and just see it seems like the years just go by faster and faster, don't they? You know, when you're young, it seems like it goes slower and slower because you just can't wait till your birthday or for Christmas. But as you get older and you don't really care about those things near as much, uh, years just fly by. And uh, as, as years come and go, it reminds me of the importance of uh, our purpose in life as Christians and also as a church. Now, there are a multitude of things that Christians and churches may do throughout the year, but there is one thing that is foundational and central to our purpose in this world, and that one thing is found right here in this text. It is that we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. It is that we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. See, to preach Jesus Christ as Lord is to declare the gospel of Christ's redemptive work, of who he is and what he has done for sinners such as you and I. You look at Christ who is the Lord here. Who is this Lord? Who is this Christ? Well, you and I who are Christians, we know the answer to that, don't we? We know him. If you've been born again, you trust him by faith. You know who Jesus Christ the Lord is. I I hope that everybody here under the sound of my voice knows that for sure in your heart. I hope that uh, today that, that you know in your heart, yes, I know I'm a Christian, I know that I've been born again, I know that I trust alone in Christ because he is the Savior and the Lord. It may be that you don't know that. If that's the case, I hope today you'll see that. You need this Lord, <laughs> that you need this Christ, you need Christ the Savior. Now, we think of ourselves who know the Lord today, but how many others have yet to have the conversion that we have experienced You see, there is an untold number of men and women, boys and girls, who need the great salvation that I am speaking of. And this is why the mission of the church is to preach the gospel to all of creation. To preach the gospel to all of creation. Now, this is what Paul's talking about, we're familiar with the Apostle Paul and his ministry, that God had called him specifically as a preacher to the Gentiles to take the gospel beyond Israel and and go to the uttermost, to those who were not Jews. And and so our mission is essentially what Paul says there in verse 5. It is to proclaim Christ the Lord. Now we think about that mission. Year after year, you understand through church history, the gospel has gone forth. What do you think is to be done with the gospel this year as we enter into 2024? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Is that the gospel must go forward. See, as we begin a new year, it must be our priority and mission to continue doing what we've been doing. To preach Jesus Christ. To declare him. To exalt him. To show forth the glory of his nature and his character and his person and his redemption. We exist, church, as a beacon of Christ's glory. We are to shine brightly. We are to herald to the world who he is. It is our calling. It is our mandate. It is our purpose. So I want to point out a few things from this text and bring them to our attention that I find are good for us to recognize. Number one is this, is the opportunity of gospel ministry. Did you know that gospel ministry is opportunity for us? It is privilege. And here's why. Consider our mercy that we have received by which we serve the Lord. Consider the fact that it is an act of mercy that you and I as Christians and we as the church, that is Lee Creek Baptist Church, get to have a part in the service of our great God. You know, Paul says some very simple things in verse 1. You'll notice he says, therefore, having this ministry. Well, what ministry? The ministry of the gospel. In the ministry of the new covenant, which is tied into the gospel, understand, he he said in the previous chapter, if you're coming through this uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, verse chapter 3, Paul is explaining that they are ministers of the new covenant. You look at chapter 3 and verse 6, he talks about God who has entrusted them with this, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You see, the new covenant was promised long ago in the prophets, and it was confirmed and established by Christ in his ministry and with the shedding of his blood. He came to confirm that covenant. He came to seal that covenant, to establish that covenant with his people. And what we read in, uh, in, in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus was establishing the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake of as members later today, He said to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What covenant is Christ talking about? The new covenant. The new covenant. You see, the new covenant is is redemption accomplished and applied in Christ Jesus. It is the fact that we as God's people truly do have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ alone in the blood of the lamb. And the church, understand, has been entrusted with that sacred privilege, that sacred message. You see, why did Paul have this ministry? Why did Paul have this? Who is he to be given such a holy responsibility? Consider that for us as a church. Who are we to be given such such a great responsibility to be entrusted with the message that saves souls with the message of our redeemer when we consider who god is and who we are we have no right at all to claim anything do we who are we to claim anything for the eternal king of all creation you see to be able to serve christ ...is a privilege that we as Christians, we don't really comprehend. We fail to see how holy it is. How high and honorable that is. That you and I are part of this work. That you and I have been entrusted with this. How how could any vile, wretched sinner... ...be given the holy task of doing anything that is holy given from God... Well, Paul gives us the answer here. How is it? What is the reason? The only reason that we have a ministry from the Lord is this. And the reason Paul had the ministry of the Lord, what's the text say? It says, by the mercy of God, he's been given this ministry. By the mercy of God. He said, well, what is the mercy of God? Mercy simply refers to God's compassion and pity upon his people. Mercy is, mercy is intertwined with grace. You can't separate the two. We often say mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And those two go hand in hand. But you understand that that mercy, mercy is, is at the foundation here for why we are who we are in Christ. You're not saved without mercy. You also don't get to serve Christ without mercy. Now, Paul understood on a very deep level the depths of God's mercy towards him. And I want to point this out to you in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to read this passage to you. If you'll look there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you look at verse 12 through verse number 16. 1 Timothy 1. And look with me at verse 12 through verse 16 for just a moment. Paul's writing to, this Tim, to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What do you see is at the heart of Paul's heart and what he recognizes as to why he is who he is and why he gets to do what he does? The answer is the mercy of God. And this always, this always sticks out to me. When you look at Paul, he knows full well who he was before he met the Lord. <laughs> Don't you know who you were before you met the Lord? We all ought to recognize that, that will help us have perspective of what it means to serve Christ. Here he says in this text that he views himself as the foremost or the the chiefest of sinners. In Paul's eyes, there was no greater sinner than him. There was no greater sinner than him. You see, such a perspective of one's self prompts us to cherish the mercy of God and the grace of God that has been bestowed upon us in both being saved by that mercy, but also being a servant of Christ by that mercy. And here's what I think all of us as Christians would do well to do, is to have the same kind of heart that Paul's had. How is it that we view our own sin? How is it that we view our own sins? Now, it is easy to Look, with disdain on the sins of others, right? It is easy to point the finger and say, well, look at that and look at this of so-and-so. But how do we view our sin? Because you and I aren't lacking of that, are we? We're not. How do we view our sin? You know, we, we think about our sin before we met Christ And and then not only that, but we think about how we wrestle and struggle even with our flesh after we've met Christ and how merciful Christ is to us even in our Christian life as his children. As his children. You know, sometimes we get aggravated at our children constantly doing the same old things, right? (laughs) The same old things. And we get on to them and we discipline them and get on to them. And sometimes I'm humbled when I just think about How often I, as the child of God, have done the same thing, and yet he's so merciful to me. He's so merciful to you. You see, all of your sin and wickedness before you came to know Christ, you did it just as Paul did. You did it ignorantly and unbelief. (laughs) Ignorantly and unbelief. But how how great was his mercy towards you. And therefore, to be called to have a part in the glorious service of Christ is a privilege beyond measure. And so, because of this, because this ministry is from the Lord God and He's been merciful to us, Paul says here, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Now, that sticks out too, because I think this is something that commonly probably happens among the people of God is that we lose heart in the ministry that we've been given. What's it mean to lose heart? The word here used for this, translated, it means to lose one's motivation. In continuing a desirable pattern of conduct or activity is to lose enthusiasm. It is to be discouraged. How many of us have ever been discouraged about something? We all have, right? How many of us have ever been discouraged about the ministry of the gospel? Maybe even about the church. Maybe about the state of things. How many of us have ever thought we'd, we're losing heart here? Maybe there's, there's things that contribute to that, right? Uh, maybe, we, the, maybe it's the, the, the things that we see in the world. We, we look at the culture of the world around us, and maybe we're discouraged. We lose heart. We think, man, is the gospel really going to make an impact and a difference? Maybe there's a personal affliction that has come upon you, and maybe that's caused you to lose heart, to be discouraged in some way. Maybe it's just the routine of things, going through your Christian Christian routine, day by day and week by week, and you just kind of get into the routine. It just becomes normal, and it's not, not really full of fire and zeal like it once was. Maybe that makes you lose heart a little bit. You see, Paul says here, this is, what, this is what drives him, all right? When he recalls to the fact that his ministry he has, it is because of the mercy of God, that sets his heart aflame. That sets a zeal within him, as to why he does not lose heart. He does not lose heart because of Christ, because of God's mercy. His mercy is motivation to him. So we think about our own Christian life here. Where is our motivation? Where is our zeal? Where is our fire and our fervor that we ought to have for the Lord? You say, I feel like it's lacking then beg God to give you a fresh zeal. Beg of him, pray, seek his face, take your heart back to the old rugged cross and behold afresh the dying Lord suffering in agony and blood on behalf of you the sinner, risen from the dead, alive forevermore, conquered the grave so that you have victory over death. I pray that God would stir afresh all of us with the mercy and grace that we see in the text. But not only do we consider the mercy that we have in serving the Lord, letter B under this heading, we also consider the method in which we serve the Lord. We serve Him because of mercy. That's what we've got to remember as we go forward. But we also have a certain method in which we serve the Lord. Look at verse 2. Paul shows us his conviction here. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. What does Paul mean by this? What Paul means here is that he refuses any kind of method which would compromise the gospel message and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not, okay, this is like a, this is one of those non-negotiables, right? You ever have things in your life that are non-negotiables? We all should have some non-negotiables. This, no, this is off-limits for me. So this right here is an off-limits thing for Paul. He refuses, he will not use the word of God, the gospel, in a shameful way. He will not use it for his own gain, nor will he tamper with it to make it more fit for the hearer. He's not motivated by money. He's not motivated by earthly accolades. He's not motivated by human approval. Paul here is committed to having integrity with the gospel, regardless of what that may cost him. A great reference here is Galatians 1 and verse 10. You can jot this down. Paul says to the Galatians who were in a bad place, they were being influenced by false teachers, a false gospel, people who had changed the gospel of our Lord. And he says in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. You understand that there is a great number of men pleasers, all doing things in the name of Christ. It's not a new thing. You see it happening in Paul's day. It was in Paul's day. But Paul's conviction he says, Am I trying to please man or am I trying to please God? He says, If I were to try to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Can we say this is true of all who gather in the name of Christ? No. We look around us, and there are many who are forsaken the gospel, the true and pure gospel, all for gimmicks to gain crowds and bring in more people. You understand? I want you to understand this about me, that my conviction is not about bringing in as, most, the most, as many people as we can, although as as we would love that, right? We want everybody to hear the gospel. But if that was my objective, man, I'd be up here dancing and putting on a show for you. And that may drive people away instead of bring them in. Just to let you know. My conviction is always to truth alone. Truth alone. Regardless of whether that brings in a lot of people or drives people away. We don't trade the gospel for gimmicks. We don't trade the gospel for greater fame and water it down just to appease the hearer. You see, many dare not to ruffle the feathers of others with the truth for fear of division or offense. May I say to you that the gospel by nature is offensive. And it is a message that does indeed bring division. And I'll tell you that it is more dangerous to tamper with the gospel than to alter it for the sake of unity. Martin Luther rightly said, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. Many today reverse that in their practice as if to say truth if possible and peace at all costs. No, friend. You see, truth always has a cost to it, and that includes the sacrifice of peace with some. Writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 23, 23, he said, Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy truth. What do you think it means? You got to pay to get it. It costs something. It costs something. So we as Paul here, we have to refuse to tamper with God's words for the sake of people because to do so is only to do a disservice to their souls. Thus he shows us in verse 2 how we must minister. Notice that he says, he ministers in this way. We must minister by the open statement of truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What is the actual intention of truth? What is its purpose? Is it not to stir the consciences of men? That is what truth is intended to do. If it appeases the consciences of men, then something's wrong. If you come to church and you're never convicted about anything, I'm not doing my job. Call a vote and get rid of me. But if I'm preaching the text, the text is going to be true. The text is true, and it will prompt your conscience. It will stir against your conscience. It will convict you of things and it will enlighten you to things. Friend, the conscience of men down within their heart needs to be awakened to the truth and what they need. You recall when Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost? You remember what the result was in the people? The Bible says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And that's the response we want to hear. (laughs) We want to see that. This is the truth, so how do we respond to truth? What do we do? Repent and believe on Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Peter didn't bring that question of conviction to them. The gospel did. The word of God did. And so the word of God always will do the work of God. That's a great principle for us to understand. The word of God will do the work of God. That's how he designed it, and I'm thankful because I don't have the power to change anybody's heart, but he does. He does. See, this is why Paul is committed to the gospel and not his own methods. And this is why the endeavor to modify the message and practices of the church today for the sake of gaining more people is ultimately self-destructive to the church itself. Only the word of the gospel in all its purity will prick the conscience and change the heart. And we have today great opportunity to declare the gospel to the lost and dying world. Notice with me number two, the necessity of gospel ministry. The necessity of gospel ministry. Why is it such a necessity? Well, there's two things I'll point out here in these next two verses that Paul brings out. One reason that this gospel ministry is a necessity to do it the way Paul describes it is because sinners are condemned in their depravity. Sinners are condemned in their depravity. You say, why is the ministry of the gospel so important? Why is it continued for 2,000 years every year that ends and enters into a new one? Why is that what continues? Because sinners need the Savior. And you understand that God is not done saving until the end. He's going to keep saving sinners. Now, we may look at our world around us and think, man, it's just so dark and so dreary and wicked. And it, 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 tends, to, it tends to automatically give us a negative effect, doesn't it, in our thinking. But I'm here to remind you that the scripture reminds us today that all the darkness of the world can't stop the light of the gospel to, from accomplishing its purposes where well it's intended You see, sinners don't know they need the Savior until they come to see why they need the Savior through the gospel message. Now, we get some insight here into what's happening with lost sinners in this passage. In verse 3, the Bible says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, some translations may say, if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Who are these who are perishing? Who are these who are lost? It is those who do not know Christ. You understand, there is going to be a number of people who will die and perish. To perish is the only end for those who never believe in Christ, while those who believe are rescued from perishing. You know, we sing a song, don't we? Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. It's an evangelistic song. We ought to be evangelistic. We must be evangelistic because there's only two options for people you either perish. For you are saved unto eternal life. Recall the most beloved verse that everybody loves to quote. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have eternal life. So what's the opposite of not believing in the son? It is to Perish. There's only two ways here. There's only two directions. You're either going to perish in your unbelief or you're going to have eternal life through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul's referencing a group of people who are perishing and will perish without Christ. So sinners understand they must have Christ or they will perish because the great day of God's wrath is coming. There's the day of judgment, friends in which every sinner that you come in contact with in this world is going to stand before their holy and righteous creator and they will give account on the day of judgment. And the difference between heaven and hell is whether they know Christ or not, whether they have Christ or not. See, why is perishing the end for these people that Paul describes? Why must those who are perishing see and believe Christ as Lord and Savior? We know the answers as Christians because of their sinfulness. We are sinners. We are filled with sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what, church? Death. but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, understanding... The sinfulness of man is absolutely crucial and essential to understanding the true gospel message. You cannot have salvation without needing to be saved from something. And What is the state of these sinners? Why do they need saving? If you're a believer, you know this truth. Because every sinner has grieved God to the uttermost. And they are worthy of His eternal judgment. They are spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses. And there's not anything they can do to change that. There's not anything a sinner can do to change who they are, their nature, what they do, and their destination they're heading towards. You know, I see often today people try to get religious and say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just start changing this part of my life and maybe God will be okay with me. Let me let you in a little secret. God's not okay with that. <laughs> You can try to turn over as many leaves as you want, but you've got a problem in your nature. In your nature, you need a new heart, and you can't change that. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you. you, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? They cannot. See, not only is it impossible for lost sinners to change their nature and their judgment they're heading to, they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Why? Because they don't see the need for it. That's the point here of this text. They don't see their need because they don't see their sin for what it is, and they don't see God for who He is. You see, lost sinners walk about in this world as if everything is fine, as if everything is just good, not realizing they are heading for destruction. See, notice that Paul says here that for some, our gospel is veiled. What does it mean when something is veiled? It means that it is hidden. It is kept secret. It's not seen, right? It's, it's, it's not clearly articulated and understood. They don't see it. And even when you tell them, sometimes they'll just put it off because they don't want to see it or they don't want to acknowledge the truth and reality that is there. You know, sometimes I like to play with Spurgeon, and I'll kind of put up my you know, dinosaur hands, and he knows that I'm on the way to tickle him, right? across the room, and I'll start walking real slowly. And, and so what Spurgeon does now is usually he's in his high chair where he can't run away from me. And so as soon as he sees me go into dad dinosaur mode, he does this. <laughs> you know, he puts his hands over his eyes. As if, maybe if I cover my eyes, he won't be coming to get me. But little by little, I step forward and forward, and then I get him. You see, see, covered sight and veiled sight doesn't change the reality of what's coming. It doesn't change truth because you don't see truth. Veiled, veiled sight never changes reality. And so Paul is telling us, for those who are perishing, the gospel is veiled, hidden from their spiritual sight. And because of such, they reject it, they neglect it, they even abhor it as religious fiction. And to make this condition even worse, there's an enemy that if he had his way, he would keep everybody lost. And he works actively to keep people in the state of deception. Which brings me to letter B here is that Satan has blinded through deception. Not only are sinners blinded inherently by their depravity, but Satan also is a blinder through his deception. In verse 4, notice what he says. Notice what Paul says here. He says, in their case... Talking about those who are perishing. They are the unbelievers, he says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who is the God of this world, little g here? Who is this person? This person is none other than Satan. He's the little g God of this world in the sense that. Satan has been given a measure of influence and control throughout the world in certain aspects. God has allowed him certain domain, and that's exactly what he does. They're blinded. Where are they blinded at? In their minds due to the efforts of Satan. You think of Satan's efforts. How has he blinded the minds of unbelievers? Well, I can tell you he did his greatest work in the early deception of Adam and Eve. Because through that deception... Understand, that's his first deception of what caused blindness upon mankind. Was man always in that depraved, deceived state? No. When was man not in this condition? With Adam and Eve in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. The first two people. How did they become fallen in their sin? And thus, this depravity is brought upon the rest of mankind. Through the temptation and deception that Satan put before them. He distorted the truth of God that was given to them. Putting before them a false concept or reality that they thought they could partake of. He said, oh no, 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 you'll not surely die. God knows this, that when you take of this fruit, you're just going to become like him. You're just going to become like him. Deception, blindness, that is what took place. And from that day forward, mankind's been blinded from spiritual truth that they actually need. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he said, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, man by his own nature is blind to spiritual truth. He does not perceive or want Christ. If they did want Christ, they would come to Christ. When you think about the message we preach, we preach eternal life, don't we? Heaven. Is there any greater thing a person could have other than eternal life, including everything in this world could offer? Is there anything better than that? No. But yet what does the natural inclination of man do? He rejects that. You know, if I announced on the news for Van Buren that today at noon I'm gonna be giving everybody a million dollars that shows up to church, do you think this church house would be full? They would. Because they want the million dollars. They could care less about Christ. But we tell them of Christ and eternal life, and they do not come. They do not come. See, why is it this way? Because Jesus, as the light, pricks them. And they don't like that. John 3.19. Listen to what John says. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. The light exposes man for what he actually is. And so therefore he is bound to his blindness. But not only that, understand, not only does their sinful nature blind them, but Satan does, does extra works to keep people blind through his deception. And how do you see this? Just take a look at all the false religions of the world. False religions, the cults, the allures of worldly pleasure, power, and popularity. A long list could be given of Satan's tactics. But we even have a clear example here in the previous chapter, this word veiled. Paul repeats it in this chapter, but he was just talking about certain people that were veiled too. Verse 14 of chapter 3, look at what it says. Referring to Israel. reading the old covenant. He says of them, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. You know what they're blinded by? They're blinded by their religion of Moses, not the religion of the Lord. Israel, deceived and blinded by their own allegiance to to Moses and the law and and all that is of the old covenant, cannot see Christ for the glorious Messiah that he is and the new covenant that he came to bring. So close were they, yet so far. And through this, we see the danger of religious blindness. And I want you to understand, church, that Satan is an expert at this particular area. Religious blindness. For those of us who know the truth, we see this tactic used much in American Christianity. Because the greatest deception of all is a little twisting of the gospel. Just enough to make it look right, but only to be damning. And I'll point this out to you in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. Look with me there if you would. Turn with me just a few chapters over. You're already in 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 11 with me. And look at verse... 13, rather verse 12 through verse 15. Paul says to them, and what am I doing? What I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, I'm just going to tell you right now, there's others who claim to do the same thing I'm doing, but they're not really doing what I'm doing. And notice what he describes about them in verse 13. He says, such are false apostles, deceitful workmen. Look at this, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, you know what Paul's saying? This isn't a surprise, because look at who's behind it. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you see the danger here that Paul is warning the church about? How close to truth Satan can appear but yet be such error that he leads so many away into their own condemnation. Sin and Satan are blinding, and Paul says that this blindness for the lost will continue to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He said, well, how then can any sinner ever be saved? The answer is right here with the word light, and on to the next verse. See, the word light here, it's only used here, this particular Greek word. It refers to illumination of the inner life, enlightenment. In other words, the inner heart of a depraved and deceived sinner must be given spiritual sight. And they can't articulate and give themselves spiritual sight. It has to come from the Lord. How then will the saving light shine unto them, enlightening them, giving them new life in the gospel? And that brings us to what our mission is from the text. Notice number three, the dependency of gospel ministry. What is it that we depend on? gospel ministry. It's twofold here. Central to the ministry we're involved in is the preaching of Christ alone. The preaching of Christ. It's verse five. I love verse five. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So notice what Paul's saying. Who is it that they preach and that the church is to preach? It is Jesus Christ as Lord. Is this really true? Is Christ Lord? What did Paul say to the Philippian church? As a result of his. Or or as at at the tail end. Or at at what happened after. His death and resurrection. Philippians 2. 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him a name. That is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. And every tongue. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. It's coming a day when all the scoffers and mockers, though they once trampled the name of Jesus underfoot with their mouth, from that same mouth they blasphemed him, they will one day confess these words, Jesus Christ is Lord. So don't let all the blasphemers around you discourage you and make you lose heart. Because this is the truth of what we read. Jesus Christ is Lord will be their confession. Either in salvation as God reaches them or in judgment before God. You see, there is no other Lord to preach. Christ's Lordship. Is the gospel message in a nutshell? For Christ as Lord humbled himself to die for sinners, rose from the dead conquering the grave. He has ascended on high. He is endowed, in and enthroned with all power and glory and authority. Since it is Christ alone who has accomplished redemption, he alone is to be preached. But you also notice from this text not only who is to be preached, but who is not to be preached. Paul say here, he says, we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Now, you understand the apostles, if anybody, could have easily promoted themselves. You understand they had, they had apostolic gifts. They had uh, unique gifts that not everybody had. They could perform miracles. They could do all sorts of things. If anybody could have propped themselves up under the name of Jesus, it would have been the apostles. But what's Paul say? He says, we don't proclaim ourselves. This isn't the gospel of Paul the Apostle, it's the gospel of Jesus. I'm just the messenger, is what he's saying. But sadly, even in our own day and age, and it honestly, it it sickens me in my heart when I hear preaching where man is the exalted one and not Christ. Often in American pulpits, preachers make a show of themselves as the center point. Making themselves the hero of the story. May I say there's only one hero of the story. And his name is Jesus. We need fewer entertainers. And more expositors. Who take the word of God. And faithfully preach it to the people of God. Week after week. Letting God do his work. Exalting Christ alone. Because it is only that. It is only the gospel. It is only the word of God, not man, that will enlighten the lost and save their souls. Paul said in Romans 1.16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek." Christ alone must be preached, because He is the conqueror. He's the one who reaches the heart of the sinner and saves them with this message. He is Savior. He is Lord, and if he is not preached, then we have failed in what we've called to do. I always love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, a great reminder for myself. He says, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And that is true. See, when Peter and John were forbidden from preaching Jesus, how'd they respond to that counsel? They said said in Acts 4.20, we cannot but speak of the things we've seen and heard. Who are you to tell us to be quiet? We've seen Christ risen. He's alive. You think he's dead? He's alive. He's enthroned with power. You don't scare us, Sanhedrin. We're just going to keep preaching Christ. You don't like it. You do what you got to do, but we're just going to keep preaching Christ. You understand the ministry of the gospel, it's not just just the pastor's ministry, the preacher, the missionary, it's the church's ministry. It's the collective duty of all of us to be a light of the gospel of Jesus. But the last part of this, letter B, is in our dependency for gospel ministry, it is the preaching of Christ alone. But you understand that we depend on the power of God alone. The power of God alone. You look at verse 6, I love verse 6. You look at verse 6 for a moment of our text. Notice what he says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's doing here? He's using God's creation event as an analogy for what happens when the gospel penetrates the heart and gives new life. Think about the power of exhibited by God in speaking everything into existence out of nothing that same power transforms the heart of sinners because it's only that power that can do that it's only that power that can do that and Paul understood that Paul was this blinded Pharisee that Christ struck down on the road to Damascus he was hardened in his heart. He had no, no will to go towards Jesus. And there on, the will, there on the road to Damascus, he struck and blinded by the light of Jesus. Not just his radiant glory physically, oh, but the light of the gospel struck to his heart. He knew that whoever this was that struck him down has to be the Lord. And when he heard it's Jesus, what humiliation he must have felt! It was Christ who is persecuting that actually is the Lord. See, we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, Colossians 1.13 tells us. And you notice what, Paul's, what, what Jesus says to Paul when he gives him his commission. In Acts 26, 16 through 18, he's recalling this, but it ties into what Paul is saying here about his ministry and the ministry of the church. Paul said, Jesus said to Paul, he said, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of the things in which you have seen in me seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Notice this, he's sending him to the Gentiles for this purpose, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Paul's dependency... Is not on himself, but it is on God alone. Verse 7, he kind of communicates that further. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Not to us. Church, may we remember that our mission, it's not dependent upon our power. It is only dependent upon the power of God. It is always his power. I could go on and on with other scriptures and I won't do that for time's sake. But I'll close with this one. Paul wrote to them in the earlier letter in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Same language he's using here. But what do we know about it? He says, but to us who are being saved and who are saved, what is the word of the cross? It is the power of God. It's the power of God. You see, the ministry of the gospel must continue today with you and me. Year by year and every year, we continue with the same message. It is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't have to invent some new thing to try to do better in some way. We stick with the old stuff. Because the old stuff is the right stuff. When I say old stuff and right stuff, I'm talking about the word of God that doesn't change. Year by year, this is our foundation. It is what we proclaim. Let us stand to our feet as we close in a song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the scriptures, that you've given us the gospel. Where would we be without the gospel of Christ? Without the work of the Holy Spirit truly enlightening and opening our eyes to see our dreadful state, our condemnation. All of us were in that category of those who were perishing. Oh, but Lord, you and your grace reached down to save us. May we recognize that in your saving of us, you didn't just save us just so we're saved, but you saved us to be servants of Christ. Help us to be that. Help us to recognize the mercy of God that's been bestowed upon us to be in such a state. Help us to always stand firm upon the gospel and its pure, unaltered message message. So that we may let you do your work and that we recognize we're just vessels that you use in that. What a privilege it is. Help us to go from this place committed to the gospel of Christ. And if there's any here today that are lost and undone in their sin, I pray you open their eyes, open their heart, bring them to faith in Christ as only you can. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.